So the topic of this sermon is different atonement theories in history. This has a strong connection between different denominations, and some in the present time are very much associated with a particular denomination. For example, governmental theory, which I will come to later, is in the present day strongly associated with the Methodist Church. But originally I was introduced to this topic to be wary of a dishonest presentation of this material by Mike Winger. The whole point of his very long teaching series was to warn the listeners that they need to understand the contents of all these theories, but they are warned that these are used as weapons by different denominations. They are presented as if they are in conflict when they are really not. And of course there are a few problems with a few of them that we need to be aware of. But generally there is so much less historical conflict between any of those things that we are generally presented today. So this, was the, this series was the inspiration for this topic at the time and then I listened to many more preachers and found that essentially all of them, all that I respected, agreed on the conclusion that there is no, no conflict at all and once you understand what they really are, you can't even imagine where that conflict could be. You have to twist, you have to twist all these facts to create the conflict. So this is what I aim, this is the general idea that I aim to give you by actually presenting all these atonement theories. Because if, if any of us doesn't present, present this content, it is highly likely that you will encounter this information from someone who is trying to sell you something. And because so many of them contain truth, and they contain truths actually not contained in the other theories, then often the experience of this kind of a person is that something has been kept from me by my denomination. Like, why are they keeping secrets from me? So this is how they get, like, there seems to be this treasure trove of information in this other denomination and their own atonement theories. Whereas there was never any reason for that. We do have our unfortunate focuses. We tend to dwell on certain aspects more than others, and we maybe as denominations participate in creating this unfortunate situation where people feel like we are keeping secrets from them, whereas our intent was not anywhere as malicious as that. We just failed certain aspects that were better tended to by other denominations. So my exhortation is to find those treasures in all these atonement theories and understand the whole process, starting from the incarnation, Jesus as an infant, to ultimately Jesus' ascension. This is a whole story arc that covers every moment in between, from incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension. And some of those atonement theories, especially Christus Victor and recapitulation theory, they address this part. And this is this gives us the feeling, if they, if, if they are presented in conflict, that the one that we hold as the de- denomination, penal substitution or atonement, defined originally in these particular terms by Calvin and Francis Turretin and so forth, very early in the Reformation, that it may feel like 
we are indeed hiding all these other things by presenting this substitution and determinant theory. But maybe it's just an unfortunate focus, but we are definitely not denying any content at all contained either in recapitulation theory or Christus-Victor theory. They focus on different things, and that's why they may give the appearance of saying something in conflict. But this conflict is non-existent. They just concentrate on different parts. And I will be going through all the theories and identifying the particular perspectives that are found in each theory and what gave historically rise to them. Because most of them rose up as responses to an earlier atonement theory. And perhaps some things that it missed and outright mistakes it had made. So this is how this whole history was created. And ultimately, it was argued to be in conflict in 1958, but that is completely artificial. I will be come to that too, but this is... So I'll start by just outlining them roughly in the order that they were named in history. Now, I say named, they were expressed very early on, most of them, but this is the way that when these were identified as a specific theory, that's where I put them in the timeline. So everything starts with ransom theory of atonement. This is the earliest named theory. Now, obviously, the Bible explicitly says that Christ was offered as a ransom. So you might wonder, why, this, why is this even a controversial thing? Like, just quote the verse, and why do you need a theory for the verse? But there is more contained. That is just the name. So obviously, Christ is a ransom. But when you say that, we have a, one obvious thing that you're going to be thinking of, like, who paid the ransom? Okay, that was clearly Christ who paid the ransom. But then the next question is not so obvious. Who did he pray, pay the ransom to? Now, we would obviously, in this in millennia of Christian history, we would say, obviously, he paid it to God. But think about the very early Christianity. Trinity didn't have a name. Those concepts existed, but they hadn't been put together. The understanding of the relationship between the, all the persons of the twin Trinity, it was very vague at the time. So... You can understand how it would seem very odd to those people to say that basically God pays a ransom to himself. Because that's what he, you need to say now. Obviously we would, say, we would solve this easily. The one person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, pays the ransom to another person of the Trinity, the Father, and problem solved. But they didn't even have that vocabulary then. So this is where they go wrong. When they find that idea so very odd... Then the next idea comes along, okay, the ransom was paid to Satan. And this is the content of ransom theory. This is why it's one of those two theories that have a real error in them. Because this is obviously a wrong conclusion. This makes God and Satan equals on the table. So God has sort of economically cheat Satan out of humanity, and that's supposedly how redemptive history worked. So very early on, this problem was identified and most of what comes after is a reaction to this original problem. This puts the problem on the table. We have to figure out that there is a payment. Everyone has to agree on that. The payment is described as a ransom. Everyone has to agree on that. But who is the ransom to? This is the problem that we're constantly dealing with. Every new atonement theory 
has to answer this same question. And the first answer went horribly wrong and everything followed from that. Everything responds to what came earlier. So ransom theory is the first one that sets the ball in motion with a strong conclusion that God pays ransom to Satan in order to purchase mankind back from Satan. Obviously false. So the next ransom theory extremely early. In the first centuries, Irenaeus, which is one of the very first church fathers from whom we have any writings at all, is named as the father of the recapitulation theory of atonement. These days, this is almost always described as a sort of historical curiosity, like a crazy thing that they, crazy theology back in the day. And almost nobody actually preaches any aspects, or at least names recapitulation theory of those aspects. They do mention all the contents in it. This is why, this is why this thing is so important to understand. You may have this instinctive reaction that recapitulation theories are things from the past, and yet you would find that you agree with all the points in it. You just never thought of applying the label recapitulation theory to group all these ideas that you already held. So this, this especially comes at an odd historical circumstance. So in my earlier sermon, I mentioned at least, uh, actually several earlier sermons, I have mentioned the Gnostics. They were the biggest problem, biggest source of heresy and conflict in Christendom <coughs> for those early church fathers, especially a person called Marcion. The overwhelming majority of Irenaeus's writings, an absolutely massive tone, is specifically written against Marcion. The name of the series, it's a whole book series, is against heresies, but really it should be called against Marcion. Because that's the whole point of the series. And he was by far the not only church father who addressed Marcion. Everyone who was anybody in the early church had books against Marcion. So that's how much influence he had. He was the competitor to what was then the early orthodox lowercase o Christianity. So this is why Irenaeus' focus has a little bit of a strange twist because it is written against a very specific idea that almost everyone at the time was aware of. And, of course, a massive amount of people actually believed. But you have to understand the idea to understand the focus of Irenaeus, why he has laser focus on this one aspect that we would maybe consider a trivial aspect of the atonement. It is because of a particular thing that Gnosticism claimed. It claimed that matter is inherently evil. So it describes what they see as sort of the fall of mankind in entirely different ways than us. We, we name the source of the problem as a particular act of rebellion. The problem is an act of sin. Whereas in Gnosticism, the problem was the stuff that we are made of. Now, it was irredeemably bad in their view. The only way to save was to free us of matter. And that was the ultimate salvation idea in early Gnosticism. This is the thing that this whole volume of books is written against. So recapitulation theory, the name, that is a little bit archaic word, but it just means summary. Summary would be the modern word for recapitulation. 
So the idea that Irenaeus presents is that Jesus' life from his incarnation to death, resurrection and ascension was a summary of the perfect life, perfect human lives that we would have lived if we were actually not under the fall. If we had been like Adam, then Jesus represents sort of the average, perfectly just life. Now, the reason here is that Irenaeus' idea is to prove to Marcion that Jesus was genuinely human. He focuses on his true humanity at every point in his life. That is why he has so much focus in, in Jesus as a baby, as a child, and an adolescent. He is always arguing that this is not any kind of an illusion, because that's what the Gnostics said. They specifically said that Jesus wasn't really human. It was a sort of a trick. He, was, he had the illusion of being tangible, but the truth was that he was pure spirit. He was a fundamentally different kind of a being that we are. We are matter and need to be freed from the kind of beings we are, but Jesus just appeared in the form of matter. So obviously Irenaeus is spending a lot of time arguing that at every point Jesus' life is the life of the perfect man, the kind of life that we would have experienced without the fall. So this is where the word recapitulation comes from. It summarizes that perfect life. And obviously the cross is the crucial moment. Now that word actually crucial, it comes from the cross. A crucial means things related to the cross. We often don't even think about when we use the word. But the cross was the definitive, the ultimate, most important moment in there. But because he's not arguing really that in that particular book, he's arguing for the true humanity of Christ, then he's not going to spend so much time on that one moment. He's trying to show that all of these phases in Jesus' life are phases of a real human being. And then, when time passes, we mostly forget what these people were preaching, we find his focus really odd, and we give it a name, recapitulation theory, and now we have a sort of a box to put Irenaeus' writings to. But that's not the only book from Irenaeus we have, it's by far the most popular book. So, there was another, actually pretty recently found, and we... Uh, it's a very short one. It was found in Armenia in modern times, uh, 1904, actually. It does not have this moment, uh, this focus, because it's just a general short treatise in theology, so short that they actually read it through. And this would be just completely normal Christianity that you would recognize today when preached at any conser theologically conservative church. So... It appears to be, it appears like we're dealing with a different Iranians, but it's just that one, the most popular book is focused on one thing only, and this is a general treatise of how Christ's life plays out. So there is much more of that penal substitution language in this general treatise, but we only recently found it, so it's understandable that we thought Irenaeus has the strange ideas when it was just that his opponent opponent had strange ideas. But it is not true that Irenaeus held recapitulation theory in opposition to other theories. So I have a few quotes here that 
are from Irenaeus, and two of them, two of these are from against heresies. That's the last place we would expect this language, and yet there it is. It is just not the focus. So, against heresies, two quotes. One, the mediator between, uh, this is Jesus, the mediator between God and men, propitiating indeed for us the Father against whom we had sinned. Now, I will be coming back to that word propitiating, because it's a direct quote from the Bible. We know what verses he, he must have been thinking of by using that word. Continuing. And cancelling our disobedience by his own obedience, conferring also upon us the gift of communion with and subjection to our maker. So this has been on substitutionary atonement. He takes our sin, solves that problem, and not only does that, not only removes our penalty, but actually confers us everything that he purchased with his perfect life. This is exactly how we would preach this in a modern reformed church. And this is from Against Heresies. Second quote from Irenaeus again. For if no one can forgive sins but God alone, while the Lord remitted them and healed men, that is people, it is plain that he was himself the word of God made son of man, receiving from the Father the power of remission of sins. Since he was man and since he was God, in order that since as man he suffered for us, so as God he might give compassion to us and forgive our debts in which we made debtors to God our creator. So he names our situation. We have this debt of sin against God and Jesus in his unique position as both God and man identifying enough in those sins, having this infinite worth being able to pay not just one person's sins, but every one of the elect. And on the other hand, being adequately identified with us, with this true humanity, to serve as our representative, so that he would be a fitting sacrifice for our sins. If, a, if he was a fundamentally different sort of being, then it would be questionable whether this is a fitting sacrifice. But he fulfills both of these roles. He can identify with us through his humanity, and he is the adequate sacrifice and in a position to give the sacrifice by his divinity. So again, Irenaeus, who supposedly holds this weird theory, but really it was just a weird focus against a weird man. And then uh, this recently found book, 1904, <coughs> The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Short quote. His robe, as also his garment, are those who believe on him, whom also he cleansed, redeeming us by his blood. So all this is there. No reason at all to present it in conflict with anything. Now, I drew your attention to this word propitiating. This is such a specific word that we pretty much know the three verses that he was thinking of here. So these are important verses in the discussion and verses very often quoted when arguing for our position, which is penal substitution atonement, or I should not maybe say our position, but our main focus. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. So since these are central verses to our view, I'll be actually reading them from the Bible. 
not, not just my tablet. Romans 3.25 First verse containing this word propitiation. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now here's an interesting little point in the underlying Greek word propitiation and this is what those who argue against penal substitution atonement they hone in on. The word is hilasterion. Now this is this has two possible meanings and obviously they grab onto the second meaning that works around this supposed problem of this so evidently preaching opposition. So the second meaning of this Greek word is the mercy seat. When we look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, whenever we find the word mercy seat in our own translated Bibles, then the Greek word that these translators chose is the Silesterion. So now they, the opponents are able to maybe somewhat credibly say that whom God put forward as a mercy seat by his blood, getting around this problem word. But that does not work with the other two verses. The other two verses use a different word, hilasmos, which can only mean satisfaction for a wrong done against the person, the appeasement for a wrongdoing. That is the only possible meaning, and that word is used in these this next two verses. So there is no way to go around these verses. So, first letter of, first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 2. First John, chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there, Christ is named as propitiation, which is appeasement for a crime, and there is no way around that word. The second time in the same letter. So first, John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The same thing. So if you think you can work around Romans, you cannot work around these two verses. So what are you going to do? with the fact that Jesus is called an appeasement. So, this is the word also found in Irenaeus' writing, discovered so late, unfortunately. So, all that conversation had already moved on to Irenaeus having a weird theory of atonement. So, that's the propitiation theory. Then we move on in our list to satisfaction theory of the atonement. This is something that we would find much more familiar. So these two are weird historical curiosities, but now we are getting to the meat of the issue. So the person named as originally defining the satisfaction theory of atonement is Anselm of Canterbury. He was archbishop in England from year 1093 to 1109. 
He was sainted by the Roman Catholic Church, obviously. That is not as important to us. I'm just mentioning it, that important person in history. So he is writing in contrast with these older focuses. At that time, almost a thousand years later, they're already speaking of these historical weird theories, these errors in the ransom theory, weird focus of Irenaeus. So now he makes the first presentation of what we would recognize as our theory. So Calvin, here's the important thing to understand. Calvin didn't change much of what Anselm defined. He changed the verbiage of it. But the content is the same when presented by Calvin and Anselm so much earlier from the Roman Catholics. So now we're getting the familiar territory with satisfaction theory of the atonement. So it is simply that the fundamental nature of the death on the cross, what it actually accomplished, is that it satisfied the just wrath of God. This is roughly how we would define it. The only problem that Calvin and the reformers had is really to just use the word wrath. It makes the, it makes the focus emotion. It makes the primarily thing that in which we are, when we're really trying to talk about justice, we are really using an emotional word and we are maybe leading at least the laity to the understanding that the problem is that God cannot control his anger. So the reformers didn't really like this way of phrasing it, that just satisfying God's wrath and nothing else. Justice is implicit. Everyone is expected to know by an archbishop that God is just, so if he feels wrath, then obviously he must be judged by just wrath, but that was no longer so obvious by the time that reformers came around, they'd say they just kind of changed the way they phrased the issue. So we finally come to our main focus theory, penal substitutionary atonement. If you asked for any reformed person, what's your atonement theory? They would almost certainly by reflex say penal substitution and atonement. They wouldn't even think of the matter. But what they would really mean is that that is their focus. That is where their mind goes to when someone asks how did the atonement work? What actually happened on the cross? They go to that topic. But very few of them would deny any contents of recapitulation, anything of Christ's true humanity identified by Irenaeus they wouldn't agree with. They would maybe disagree that this shouldn't be described with the word atonement. Maybe they would rather that this is called incarnation theory and then atonement theory is a separate thing. But the contents, they would agree. They just think that this is the most important thing, so this one thing is where their mind goes to. So the reformers really don't change the contents, but they change the focus from emotional language when we're speaking to God to an analogy of human justice system so that we can understand better what happened there. Why was the sacrifice necessary when we consider our own courts? That somewhat similar things happen in our own courts. One example that was presented in one of the videos that I watched is called strict liability. So this is not a perfect analogy. There is really no perfect analogy of, of what Christ did in human affairs, but there is something somewhat similar. So the idea is that if you're the owner of a company, 
then some, someone of your employees might do a crime or something that incurs financial damage and you are actually liable and everyone may, may recognize in court that you did nothing wrong, you didn't even know about the situation and you're still liable. So one thing does the crime, the other suffers the consequences. And our courts have worked like this and they have worked very long time like this. It may seem weird until you understand that if we remove strict liability, then no boss will ever even want to know what is going on with their employees because it gives them cover. So we don't want that to happen. So we strongly motivate them to be very intimately aware of what goes on in their company by holding them liable. So we're letting them suffer the consequences while acknowledging in court that they did no wrong. They did no actual crime. They are not criminally liable. They are financially liable. So something like this happens in our very own court. It is not always that there are bad consequences just for actual guilt. So this is how the reformers changed the focus, that they tried to remove this emotional language that maybe had at that time become a little bit of a barrier. Like maybe people were in fact thinking that God has an anger management problem and they wanted to get around that by changing the kind of way, the human analogy that they are using to say essentially the same thing. So I group satisfaction theory and penal substitution or atonement together. Maybe even the satisfaction theory was the best way to express it at the time because no one would even consider the idea that God would, be un, would experience unjust wrath. It was just a given that there would be a reason if God experiences wrath. So I, in my own thinking, I removed the number of seven theories to really six theories, two of them expressed in different words. So then we come to the controversial point. So this is when all the trouble started. At this point, recapitulation, it was a weird thing, but this was not a battle raging in Christianity. This next <coughs> theory is what sets the ball in motion, and not even at the time, because this is a very old theory. This is essentially the theory that the entire Eastern Orthodox Church holds. So massive amount. If we calculate all those who identify as Christians throughout all history, then we can stand, we don't, we are no match for the numbers of Eastern Orthodox. So very old theory, but named at a particular point in history, which is why I put it here. But don't think it as a modern theory. Think of the name as a modern theme. Christus Victor, a summary created by a Swedish bishop uh, named Gustav Aulen, to this very old idea in a very important book in 1958. So this is how late all this real battle started. This book set the ball in motion and was the first presentation that these are actually conflicting ideas. They are different arguments arguing with each other of what happened, which is not true. <coughs> now, I don't really know anything about this person myself, but N.T. Wright has, Lee Late, N.T. Wright has given a lot of teaching on penal substitution and atonement, and he knows the situation 
of this person a little bit better. So he had a little more understanding for what happened here. That in this, as is usually the case with state churches, especially very old state churches, they get to weird places theologically. And N.T. Wright said that at the time he wrote this book, the way that penal substitutionary atonement was expressed was really crude and simplistic. So this book was sort of an born from the annoyance of simplifying the, this vast, rich thing so much, which I can easily see, because I have so often seen the atonement presented somewhat this way. You are going to hell, Christ died on the cross, now you're going to heaven, story over. This is probably somewhat what was happening in his church. So you can understand why he would be irritated, but still the claims that he actually presents, they are not true because he presents the historical theory of penal substitution atonement as being in conflict with Christus Victor. This is the moment in history where our battles start. And as, it, as is usually the case, they start in Christian academia. We never hear about them. We never hear about these books. They just, the ideas just kind of percolate from seminaries to pastors to a train to the laity and then we're just in the middle of this battle that we thought was raging forever but it had a very specific history that we didn't know about. So that's the problem book. The name of the book is Christus Victor and the name of the theory is Christus Victor. So you can understand how important the book this is if it gives the name to the atonement theory. That's why I put this in this year. So this is really a way to describe especially the Eastern Orthodox understanding, but there is a lot that Roman Catholics would also agree with this. So he attempts to describe what he... Well, here's an actual direct quote from him, so I'll just read it himself what he aims to do. Quote from Gustav. Its central theme is the idea of the atonement as a divine conflict and victory. Christ, Christus Victor, fights against and triumphs over the evil powers of the world, the tyrants under which mankind is in bondage and suffering, and in him God reconciles the world to himself. Now, what was there to even disagree with? <laughs> this is just obviously true. But he describes that this is the historical understanding of the atonement held until Calvin puts this new idea and then he presents the progressive, which was already happening at the time, the progressive view of the atonement called moral example theory or moral influence theory. Everyone of these theories have different names. So if you see the name moral, think liberal and progressive. So he presents three theories in conflict with each other. One, this, what he argues, is the original theory, named Christus Victor, named by him, penal substitution and atonement held by the reformers, especially Calvin, and then moral influence theory held by the progressive Christianity. This is what the book tries to argue, three opposing views. Well, obviously, the moral influence theory is opposing everyone else, as this way with progressives, but the first two are not really in conflict. So that's the controversial theory. That's the main 
reason that people nowadays are presenting as if there are competing theories of atonement. But the controversy does not quite end there. That is just the most important one. But the next one is also somewhat controversial, especially for us. And this is important to understand because it allows you to understand Arminianism, especially Methodists. So these days, this theory didn't come from Methodism, but it is most strongly associated with Methodism in the present day. So it is governmental theory of atonement. So this is really the tool to argue against reformed theology, to, a tool to get around the problem that leads people to conclude on limited atonement. So what it says is that, yes, Christ was indeed a sacrifice, an, an adequate sacrifice for the amount of sin collectively done by this organism called the church in history. So the value of the sacrifice was indeed adequate to the task. So the value of the sacrifice is enough to create this group of people who are atoned for because adequate value has been paid and now the debt is handled. But governmental substitution says that no individual actions were even part of the atonement. It was just enough value to create this group whose sins are paid. But there is nothing really that ties an individual to the atonement itself to this group. The choice of the individual either includes him or excludes him. The atonement accomplished the, for the possibility of this group whose sins are handled, but it has no bearing on any individual. Christ did not have any individual nor any individual's actions in mind. He just had providing adequate value in mind. So the, it's called governmental substitution, first of all, because the church body is seen as a government, as an entity, and the problem of sin is about this entity, not an individual. And second of all, it has sort of an analogy to a human government that the idea is there that if God just overlooks sin and does nothing about it, then he looks like an unjust judge. And obviously he is the judge of creation and the absolute uncontested head of creation. So it's a massive problem if it looks like he's completely arbitrary and just lets people scot scot-free just because he prefers to. So governmental theory argues that the point, that the reason that atonement was necessary is to show creation that yes, sins have consequences, but they are not always born by the person himself. This is, this is just that to show that God is still a just judge of creation. And that was the reason atonement was necessary. So again, when you go this way, then you don't have to think along the lines that leads a person to limited atonement. Like, the reason a person usually gets there is that they think of this, what was God thinking before Jesus became incarnate? What was the plan before time? Because he already know, knew who would accept him and who wouldn't. He knew who each individual that the atonement would be applied to and who it would not be applied to. So it looks like there are only two possible things that God could be thinking. He could be either thinking that I will atone for the, these individuals and succeed. 
or I will atone everyone and fail. Because those are really the only two options. If that was the plan to atone for everyone and people go to hell, then clearly that plan must have failed. Now obviously God's plans don't fail, so the plan must have been to atone for those specific individuals. And now we have an actual atonement that does something. It actually saves from hell. So this thinking usually is the kind of thinking that leads a person to limited atonement that governmental, governmental theory gets surrounded by saying that individuals were not in God's mind at all. The body, the collective organism called the church was in God's mind. So if someone is an Arminian, they most likely they hold to at least ideas of governmental atonement even though they might not know the name. It's a tool to argue for that. Because otherwise it seems that you're either stuck with limited atonement or universalism. Everyone goes to heaven. If everyone is atoned for, then why would they be punished a second time? That's, that's the kind of thinking. So it's a sort of a limited atonement in that it creates a limited group, but no individuals, just a limited group. So governmental theory. Little bit problematic, but I would not call it a massive problem. But the final one, this is the massive problem. This is how progressive Christianity works. This is how all, this is the engine for all that social justice talk. It's hard for us to understand how you can even turn Christianity into this. Like, you read the same Bible as we, how do you find the main focus of this whole text that you must work in order to achieve social justice. And you usually have very specific ideas of what that social justice is going to look like. How do you even theoretically find that in the Bible? Well, moral influence theory is the primus motor for that idea. So, they deny everything that we would acknowledge about the atonement except for the crude fact that Christ died on that cross. Everything else that we would describe the atonement with goes out of the window. And rather the idea is that Jesus worked as an example of how we would, should live our lives. That, was, that is the whole point of what Jesus came to accomplish. Nothing else. The cross was just an example of dying for someone. So when we see Christ die for someone, then we should be inclined to, to die for others too. And that's the totality of the atonement. Now you have stripped, for, stripped all of the contents out of Christianity, and now you can understand that now you're in a position, okay, what do I actually do then? Because this doesn't give me any direction in my life. So you do basically what you like, and for most of these people, that is trying to exert political influence. So that's, that's how this works. So what, how do they get around the clear fact that Jesus died for our sins? Well, in a somewhat way that is at the same time clever and incredibly stupid. They say that this word for, and this, uh, this whole argument really only works in English. So when you say Christ died for our sins, that word could, could mean what we think it means, that our sins were put on him, or it could be that we were simply the reason why God died. Simply a causal thing that our rebellion 
led to Christ's death. And this is all that the sentence is trying to communicate. Again, it is entirely dependent on that word for being ambiguous in English. But that's the idea. So God, uh, Jesus died because mankind is rebellious. Now, what about all those propitiation things? What was actually appeased? They have an answer for this too, and it gets even more foolish than everything so far. So we, mankind, we the rebels, were appeased. That's what they, that's what they in fact say. That we had this massive bloodlust in us, and he let us witness this incredible crime, us seeing ourselves crucified Jesus, and then we see that we did this horrible thing, and now we are reformed. Now, now we understand how bad we are, and now we're going to do better. Now, first of all, nothing in the text actually supports that. There is no one in there who were participating in the crucifixion who actually reacted this way. They all were extremely happy that they got rid of this troublesome, troublesome Jesus figure. And the history of mankind completely denies. This brutal execution, torture methods, they continued on. Nobody learned anything by witnessing their own actions. They were pretty happy with the results of their own actions. So this is, this is doing absolute violence to the biblical text, and also it is completely contrary to both history and our common experience of what actually changes us. So now here's the massive problem with presenting Jesus as an example when you make this assumption. His death was entirely pointless. If we tried to accomplish something, he utterly miserably failed. We did not learn anything. So is that supposed to be now our example? Because that's an example of suicide, and a particularly faulty suicide at that. So when you take the penal substitution atonement away from the death, when the cross no longer accomplishes something, then the death becomes pointless and it is no example at all. So this, and this is the fact with the rest of these theories, they fall if you deny penal substitution atonement. If you deny that the cross really accomplished this thing, then this whole story becomes nonsense. So let's say Christus Victor theory. So it is presented as Gustav divine it as the story of how Christ wins the forces of darkness. But if the cross does not actually accomplish the propitiation of sins, then how is it a victory? You remove the explanation for how the story is a victory by removing the explanation of what actually happened on the cross. You need penal substitution atonement to explain what happened on the cross in order to view the wider perspective of the whole story. So these uh, theories, they support each other. They are different focuses. They're, you focus on different points. And we, at least in the present day, usually face this issue that someone comes to us like, how does this Christian story make any sense? I'm supposedly going to eternal torment in hell, and you, because you said a prayer, now you're going to heaven, even though you did the exact same thing as me. And this is the objection that we deal all the time. So we again and again find ourselves going to explaining what actually happened on the cross. And we are forced back to penal substitution atonement. We are very rarely asked by someone to explain the whole story of incarnation through ascension. Now that's an unfortunate thing because this 
is a rich treasure trove of content, this Christus Victor theory. But it needs penal substitution atonement to explain what happens on the cross, to explain why Christ is in fact the winner. So again, the theories support each other and lean each other except for the two problematic ones. I don't see really any redeeming, redeeming value in moral influence theory as an atonement theory. But if we rather called it the sanctification theory, then those words are the best, best description of how we learn in sanctification. We use Christ as our example. And when his death on the cross actually accomplished something and he truly died so that we would receive the benefit, then he's a real example. And now we learn to live the perfect Christian life by imitating Christ also in that aspect if we are ever called to it. For example, if we are forced to deny Christ on the penalty of death, there we get to imitate even this aspect and we are actually accomplishing something good just like Christ. We are upholding God's glory and we are considering our own life as having less value than God's glory. This is us in a somewhat lesser and childish way imitating the massive thing, the central thing in all of human history that Christ did. You need the explanation for what happened in the cross to make sense of anything else. So, all the teachers, they said the same thing in almost exactly the same words. Like, look into these other theories. Find all the things that the Orthodox, for example, say of what exactly happened. There is one detail that I find as Reformed as often neglecting. And now there's a former Calvinist who is kind of the fighter for Eastern Orthodoxy in the internet these days. And this was an excellent example watching him, watching one of his videos of how this works out in, in practice. So the name of this fellow is Jay Dyer. So he, again, he used to be a Calvinist, and now in his videos he is preaching against Calvinism and saying that either Eastern Orthodoxy has the real deal, understands what really happens in the atonement. And that was a good learning example of watching how he argued for the thing. So I will be coming, coming to that after I deal with a little more annoying case than Jay Dyer. Because I also watched a video from a progressive, or I didn't watch it myself, but Mike Winger posted that video on his channel. And this presented an excellent example of three different approaches to penal substitution atonement by three different positions. This was highly interesting, maybe the high point of my preparation. So Mike Winger himself was the first example at one end of the spectrum. He explicitly identified as supporting penal substitution atonement. However, he said that this wording, that God's wrath was poured on Christ on the cross, that is, of course, not a quotation from the Bible, and it is not even a paraphrase of the Bible. It is a summary that we have come up with. So he says that he has, he's a little bit queasy about these words. They are too easy to misunderstand and make it about emotion and anger management issues. So he says that maybe these words should be somewhat improved and he doesn't personally use these words to describe it. That's one end of the spectrum. Then there was the middle of the spectrum. So 
this, I don't exactly know what this person's denomination was, he identified himself as an Anabaptist. Now, probably primitive Baptist then, because that's typical of them. But anyway, that's what he said. He identified with the radical branch of Reformation. Not a Mennonite, not an Amish, but still says that he is within that branch. He actually identified with every other, every, all of the content of penal substitution and atonement, except this God's wrath was poured on Christ on the cross. But his reaction to these words was so strong that he was willing to just for this one disagreement throw out the label altogether and not identify himself as a penal substitution atonement guy, even though he agreed with every single other detail. So Mike Winger and this guy, they hold the same positions. Both have the problem with this one sentence, but the reactions are different, opposites of each other. And then there's the extreme end of the spectrum, a progressive Christian who rejects all historical Christianity. Now, his uh, summary of what we believe was, it was just absolutely vile blasphemy. I, I find it hard to believe that he even believed himself that we really believed that. But he spelled out that we believe that the problem really was that God does have anger management issues. And that's the only problem. That God wanted to set us free, but he found himself so angry and he just couldn't get rid, rid of this anger in any way except to take it out on someone else. And that's supposedly what we believe about the atonement. And the way he said it, like, it was just absolutely full of bile. So if this middle person in fact knows someone who has, who has held this position, who really genuinely thinks that this is what penal substitutionary atonement guys believe, then I can understand why he has such a strong reaction to those words, because he has actually seen someone misunderstand them in that way, whereas for Mike Winger it's maybe just a little theoretical danger. But it was highly interesting to see someone who, at least to me, appeared to believe himself, even though I found it just like, who, who would actually say that about God? But he seemed to believe that we, that's how we see the atonement. It was just amazing to watch. So, great spectrum of the three ways to view the same facts. And one just completely twisting the facts. So, as I said, that makes the moral influence theory the most dangerous thing, because that's where you see the proper hardcore blasphemy. Now, obviously they all make this argument. If we were in that position, we wanted someone to not suffer some dire consequences. Let's say that it was our own child, then we're thinking we could just forgive. Why can't God do that? And this is what they repeated over and over again, that I can just forgive. Am I then better than your God? But you, as a human being, are in an entirely different role. You're not responsible for managing the creation. You don't have this other consideration of every, every eye being on you and needing you to be judged or else uh, just uh, just judge or else the entire creation project falls apart and we are dealing with the same thing in our employment all the time we as employees cannot 
We have liberties that our bosses and especially the owners of the company simply do not have. Every moment they are representing the company. We, when we go home, we are mainly ourselves. Maybe if we are specialists to it in social media, we may have consequences, but the employees are not thinking of representing the company every second of the way. So even we, as in our human affairs, we can understand that someone may be in a different role. Someone can just forgive. If your friend has offended against you, you can just forgive and nothing happens. When you're judge of the creation and everyone is watching you, you don't have that liberty. You have to deal with it in some other way. But they just cannot see them. They look at the progressives, look at themselves and think that we must think that human beings are better than God. And the complicating thing is that the Gnostics I mentioned, they in fact do believe this. They call Yahweh the Demiurge and they actually name it him as an evil being and that's why he created this evil matter and that's the problem with us. That's, <laughs> that's the view of the Gnostics, a crazy view but ironically what they think we hold was actually held by a crazy group in history that still exists with us today. But it is informative to understand that progressive Christianity it does at least have theories. Like it, it's not completely random thoughts. They they are not just just outright deciding to make the Bible what say whatever they want. They, there's work and there's books and there's arguments that if they really want to believe something, then they can convince themselves that wiser people than them believe these things. So now they are safe to believe too. But it's important to understand that this moral influence theory, it is the motor. It gives these ideas that we then find so baffled that how can they think, think these things. Obviously, it requires for you to take a very low view of the Bible, because there's so much in the Bible that is in direct conflict with these ideas. So they even have an answer for that. They say that the Bible is inspired in the sense that mankind is writing horribly wrong things in the Old Testament and then they're learning to write not as horribly wrong things in the New Testament. So they're improving and we can learn from that improvement and we can become progressives and then we have improved even further. This is what they actually say, that inspiration of the Bible means. So again, they are free to throw away anything they don't like from the text and then when they have these theories, they can pretty much turn it. It becomes Plato in their hands. But when you listen to them carefully, you will recognize the moral influence theory verbiage in how they speak. They will refer to Christ being our example and leaving it at that, saying nothing else about Christ than being an example in that unfortunate situation. But now we're so much wiser, so we're actually better off than him. So, hard to sympathize with that, but at least there are theories behind it. So, one good example, actually the best example of having one text and three very different readings of the text is Isaiah 53. Again, this is such an important passage that I will open my physical Bible there. So, this is the one chapter that when you read it in the Old Testament, you easily think that you are reading the New Testament. 
So let me just read it and just try as an, as an exercise to hear these words and imagine some different reading than we having the guilt and Christ paying the guilt. Like, is there any other way? Because there are two actually ways, other ways. But can, can you even guess how to twist this passage from the plain reading? So I will read the whole chapter fast. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought, brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its sharers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, and my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now you could probably not imagine a way out of this clear over and over and over again. He carries our sin. Well, the progressive side and the modern rabbinical Jewish side have two different approaches. Do opposite approaches have, the, have their individual problems of making this text say something other than it plainly says? So the progressive side rela relies on the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Septuagint. Because on this point, it, it's easy to understand. They had no idea when they were translating this portion. They had no idea what, what this text mean, meant. But they have to translate it some way. So they did much interpretation by their own ideas of what it's dealing with. And the text in the hands of the Septuagint translators changes a lot. And the progressive Christians argue that since the New Testament seems to rely on the Septuagint, on crucial passages, then that must be the superior translation. And 
it becomes much more vague in the text and now it is possible for them to hold that this just means that Jesus suffered as a consequence of our bad choices. He didn't actually pay for anything, but we did bad, and now Christ suffered, and that's all this is about. It does not work with the Hebrew text. This is too clear. Now, here's an interesting thing. Matthew does quote this very chapter, and he doesn't quote it from the Septuagint. In fact, he makes his own translation from the Hebrew there. So he is clearly against this particular Septuagint rendering here. So even though we might argue on certain passages that they were uh, quoted from the Septuagint, this one passage is specifically avoided in the New Testament. So there is no way around the Hebrew. Matthew specifically makes his own translation to Greek, even though he had the Septuagint text available. He was writing in Greek, Septuagint was in the Greek, it would have been the easy thing to do, and he went out of his way to avoid it. So at least in this case, the Hebrew text should be considered priority. So that's where the progressive side goes to die. This text is correct in the Hebrew. Now what do the rabbis then do? The rabbis say that the suffering servant is the nation of Israel. Now when you read a few verses down, this makes kind of sense until you come with a very serious problem of who is us. Because Isaiah is saying for our transgressions. Now, was not Isaiah part of Israel? Of course he was. So did Israel now suffer on behalf of Israel? This makes no sense. And this, then it mentions our nation. So now, at this point, at least, there must be Israel who is sinning. And Israel who is atoning, it becomes abject nonsense. So this must be a prophecy of something in the future, at this point, that the Septuagint translators did not yet understand, and we do. We have the literal rendering in the Hebrew and the wrong interpretation in the Greek translation. So the rabbis can't credibly turn this into Israel because of that problem. It would be nonsense when written by Isaiah, who would be identifying the we would be Israel and the servant would be Israel. Absolute nonsense. So the only thing that is left is just reading what it says. It has to be a prophecy of some individual in the future who fulfills all these things. But if it is that, <coughs> then the penal substitution appears over and over and over in this text. It is impossible to get rid of it, no matter how different denominations try. Judaism, of course, is not the denomination of Christianity, but you get my meaning. Now, this verse, I think I already quoted earlier, but now I'm quoting it for a different reason. Because this is, once again, very important passage in penal substitution atonement. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So that was one of the places where propitiation actually occurred, the word. But it answers another thing too, in just one little verse. So I'll read it again. Chapter 3, verse 26. Uh, actually, I'll try from, for context from verse 25. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed away over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So now this explains why the atonement happened, that God might simultaneously be just and the justifier of the sinner. Because that's the obvious problem. If God leaves us with no consequences for our sins, how is this possibly justice? Well, Paul identifies that the point of Christ's death was to solve this very problem. It was to show that God is in fact these two things at the same time. He lets us go free and he is just. Paul identifies the cross, that when you understand the cross, you understand why this is true. So, immensely important to understand. But then, there is all, all this rest. So, I mentioned Jay Dyer, who currently is a defender of orthodoxy. This was another great example of how this works out in practice. Because he specifically said that he is going to disprove the Calvinistic theory of atonement with what he's about to say. Very courageous claim. And I, would, I did not agree with any of the part that he presented as a refutation of Calvinism. I agreed with every single statement, and he didn't really even explain how it's in conflict. He just kind of described the, what happened after the cross in Hades, as if it obviously disproves Calvinism. I was like, yes, I agree with everything you said so far, and I can't even theoretically see how you might think these two things are in conflict. But this is what happens. So we end our focus on the moment of the cross, because Jesus says it is finished. Now what is finished? The solution to sin. We end our focus there. We don't look at the time in Hades, the actual resurrection, we may find even difficult to, to explain why resurrection was necessary if the problem was solved previously, and then the ascension. So the orthodox position, because it's looking at the whole thing, how Christ actually accomplished the victory. It has to continue. There are events, important events, that J. Dyer quoted from the Bible, as if we don't know these verses, that we are going to change our mind just by encountering these verses in the Bible for the first time, apparently. Obviously not going to happen. We know these verses. So the things that happened in Hades are part of the story of how God won the victory against the forces of darkness. They thought they had mankind. Mankind had joined the rebellion, and there would be no way that God would be just and allow mankind back into his presence. Then they saw Jesus arrive on the scene. Obviously, they didn't know what he was planning, but it must be something important. So they get Jesus killed. He's removed from the playing field, and now they think that, okay, we didn't know what the plan was, but now we're certainly achieved victory. And that was actually the way they accomplished defeat. Now, to understand how that happened, you need to continue to the time in Hades, where we have few few important quotes, so these were the ones that he quoted. Second, 
Peter chapter uh, 2 verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So that was Peter's and Jude describes the same event. If the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So angels, specific angels rebelling at a specific time, namely the time of, no- time of Noah, are described of being in chains in gloomy darkness. So what does the Bible then say that happened when Christ entered Hades? Quote, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, captives and he gave gifts, gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now, we translate it differently, and I actually agree with the orthodox translations. It means lower regions of the earth, which means under the earth, which means Hades. So this says that in order to liberate those captives, Jesus has to enter Hades and then ascend ultimately to heaven. The part about the victory, of of understanding how the victory was won, the story must continue. This freeing of the captives must happen. And then regarding those angels that I quoted, there is the part of preaching to angels, uh, to spirits in prison. It doesn't specifically say to angels, but it says that they are in prison. And this is how Peter and Jude describe these particular angels in Noah's time. So Jesus must have at least done two separate things. One involving humans who were captive and he liberated them, but there is no redemption for angels. So what would he be preaching to those angels? The only thing that really makes sense is preaching the victory. They had no idea they were in prison, what was going on in the earth. So he went there and told that the war is over and the victory is finally won. Two important events that happen in Hades, and when you're trying to explain how God won this victory through Christ, you're going to address this. And obviously, if this is like Tadeyer said, that he had never heard any preaching in his Reformed Church on this topic. So obviously, this looks like an entirely new thing. That shouldn't have been the case. That is our failing of failing to address this particular topic. But none of us would deny it. We read those verses and we think that this is maybe a little bit odd, but we're not denying any of that. But he clearly was under the impression that just quoting these verses, quoting these events in connection to atonement, would cause us to switch to the orthodox view. So maybe we should be preaching a little bit more of these strange-seeming things, the spirits in captivity and what actually happened during that time. But this, again, demonstrates the problem. He had never encountered these things. And the first time he encountered them, the people who told them had an agenda. They were trying to argue for, for their own denomination. That If you join the Eastern Orthodox, you learn this old new stuff. We should not have let him be in that position. We should have kept all these things in our preaching. So, again, hold to recapitulation. Understand that Jesus really was a man and there is all the content 
in the Bible that explains all the things he did as a man. You cannot fall into the agnostic trap of think, thinking it is a mere illusion. And he did win a victory where the whole story starts from incarnation and ends ultimately in the, in the ascension. The Orthodox, Orthodox are exactly right that if you want to ex explain that story, you cannot stop at the moment of the cross when Jesus says it is finished. But if you want to explain how we got rid of our debt of sin, then it is exactly that moment of it is finished, and we don't need to address that to continue to the Hades part. So these are different focuses. So this is, again, my message that don't fall into this trap. Don't fear these competing atonement theories. They have a lot of stuff to learn, and it might even be that you have to learn some of these things from the Eastern Orthodox if we're not preaching on them. But they were never in conflict with each other. So with this exhortation of not hearing any of these contents, and hopefully you have encountered it from a friendly face before you encountered it from a foe with an agenda, then if I have accomplished that, then I have accomplished my purposes with this sermon. So let me end in prayer. Father in heaven, there have been so many traps in the history of Christendom and there is so much truth that when mixed with a lie, you can make it a dangerous thing. You can turn it into a weapon in the wrong hands. We should never fear anything that is in the Bible. If it sounds weird, then that should be just a motivation to figure the thing out. If we just skip the thing constantly, because it's always too weird from us, then the first time we will hear it from someone who does not have our best interests in mind. So let us always approach your word with courage, but also with humility, understanding that, especially when we are at an early point in our Christian walk, we lack much of the necessary information to understand the passage. So at that point, we should just move forward, but we should keep it in mind that we have to do that, because later on we will be in a better position. We will know such, so much more from the whole redemptive plan in history, and these new mysteries will start to open. We will need the assistance of your Holy Spirit, but this is really what I pray, that none of us would fall into any of these traps, that to be lured with seemingly new information, especially if it is our own failing, that we have failed some particular aspect constantly in our preaching, and given the impression that we are keeping secrets from people in our congregation. Then let us repent from that, but also please guide these people, these victims who are being presented the false impression of these ideas. This is all just, this all just shows how complex your whole plan of redemption was. You can focus on so many different things and on every reading of the Bible you will find new things, you will find new mysteries there and we should never be scared of the process and we would always be willing to start reading the Bible all over again when we think we're finishing it, because there will be new things the next time we go there. But we cannot do this in our own wisdom, we cannot do this in the strength of our own flesh. So please, every time we open your word, let the Holy Spirit guide us in our reading. This I pray, and all us teachers, let us notice this, traps. Let us warn our congregations of all these dangers. Let us be vigilant 
in teaching and preparing the Bride of Christ as spotless when we finally enter a new Jerusalem. This I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.